it's been a tough start in Ecclesiastes, if you've been here the last couple of weeks. A lot of bleakness in the first two chapters, just little glimpses of hope as we've neared the end of each chapter. And for many of us in the room, we, we well know that life is tough. We don't feel that we need to be reminded. And we long for hope as we read the teacher's despairing words. We long for hope that seems in precious short supply. But stick with it. Stick with this teacher, because hope is coming as we move on through this book. And hope is coming as we read Ecclesiastes as those who know far more about life beyond the sun than this teacher did. And about the one who went to the deepest depths, but then rose again, destroying the destroyer of death once and for all. So stick with it. Uh, and we began in chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, a couple of weeks ago, uh, with a poem about how life, like nature, seems to exist on an endless cycle of repeat. Uh, and then we finish chapter 1 in um, chapter 1, verse 13, with just a precious glimpse that there might be something more than this life under the sun, a life beyond the sun. And we saw, too, that God has given us this way of living. It is from him, part of his good, kind plan for us, his children, whom he loves. And we saw last week uh, from chapter 1, verse 12, the teacher's hunt for happiness. Uh, We watched uh, and reflected again just now with the children of how he turned life upside down to see if and where he could find meaning in it. And we saw his failure and frustration. But then again, in chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, we saw that even in the futility and the frustration, God gives us something. He gives us the ability to enjoy the simple things, to eat, to drink, and to be happy in our lives. And of course, we read this wisdom book as Christians, as those who know what the prophets search to find, what the angels long to look into the salvation that God has brought for us in Christ. And we know that this salvation did not and does not occur by God pulling us out of this futile fallen world or wrapping us up in cotton wool so that we don't feel its pain. No, this salvation occurred by God himself entering our fallen world, taking on our flesh and living here with us in it. Our our loving Lord Jesus knows what it is like to experience pleasure, to grow in knowledge, to get down to work. He knows what it's like to eat, drink and toil and to sometimes find those things satisfying and sometimes not. He knows what it's like to live a largely very quiet life, certainly the first 30 years of his life amongst unexceptional people, in an unexceptional place, doing unexceptional things. Because that's what he chose to do, what he had to do, to come and save us. And he walks with us now, through his spirit, holding our hands as we run along the hilltops, as we fall into ditches, as we swerve to avoid the potholes, and just generally try to negotiate our way through life in this broken world. Well, hopefully that's helpful to, uh, to set the scene, to give us a sense of where we're heading. 
Uh, but let's turn now um, to the passage in front of us, Ecclesiastes 3, as Leo just read for us. Um, and the teacher begins this chapter uh, by taking us on a tour of the times that we live in, in verses 1 to 8. Uh, so our first point, we live in uh, the best of times and the worst of times. Uh, from Charles Dickens, The Tale of Two Cities. Um, There's a time for everything, the teacher says, and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, and so he continues. And it's a beautiful poem. It's kind of summarized in the first verse, the first verse almost like a title, that there's a time for everything, Uh, And this poem beautifully captures our experience of life, the pairs of opposites reflecting the ebbs, the flows, the highs, the lows of the days, the months, the years, the decades, as we seamlessly slip or we're abruptly jolted from one season of life to the next. Uh, In one season, verse 2, you're sat by the hospital bed greeting your newborn daughter, nephew, grandchild. And the next season, you're there again, but saying goodbye to your granddad, your mother, your friend. Some seasons of life, us four, are filled with laughter and celebration. And in others, we seem to know only grief and loss. And in our human activity too, jumping down to verse 6, there's a time to hunt, to pursue, to try to find, to get. And also a time to give it up as lost and to move on. And there's a time in verse 7 to pour out words, words of love, affection, warning, rebuke. And then there's a time when the words are better left unsaid. This poem captures the ebbs and the flows, the highs and the lows of living. And it captures too the degree to which our times are formed by our relationships, not just the mere ticking of the clock, the movement of the sun. It's with other people. It's because of other people so often that we weep and laugh, that we mourn and dance, that we embrace or keep our arms by our sides. And it captures too how these times largely happen to us. We may do things that that cause us later to laugh or to weep. We certainly pour our own energy into pulling down and building up in verse 3. But we don't really know when birth or death will come, when war will come, or when we'll have peace, or what we'll find when it's time to uproot. We're not generally in control of the seasons of our lives. We don't know when they'll come, when they'll pass, which ones lie just around the corner, for how long they'll last. And they're so often so all-engrossing when we're in them. When we're lost in tears, we don't feel like we'll ever smile again. And there feels almost a a fickleness to the way that the teacher skips from positive to negative and back to positive. Just like life. The hard times so often undermining the good times, putting the good times in their place and taking away some of the joy. And each of us in the room will be in our own particular season of life now. Some knowing joy, new starts, new beginnings, new relationships, new work, new hope. Many others among us knowing great grief, a season of mourning, of loss, of struggle. It can be tempting, I think, to, um, 
to try to look into our hearts or, or to look around the room and to think that the reason that they or we are knowing these joyful or these difficult times is because it's something that they or we have done. We, we condemn ourselves when things are tough. Or we're proud when things go well. Or we judge others when hard times fall on them. Or we quietly covet when life takes a good turn for them. Or perhaps we plough our energies into trying to avoid the lows. If I can get healthy enough, if I can work hard enough, if I can keep people on side, I'll only know good times, we tell ourselves. Or we throw our hands in the air and we fall into despair as our troubles go on. So we just feel so powerless, as if we've got no agency. We, we can't avoid or escape these lows. But these times come to all of us. This teacher's saying, the best of times and the worst of times. We look around and perhaps others seem to enjoy a particularly full cup. Maybe others seem particularly bowed down. But the ebbs and flows of life will come to us all. Not really because of what we've done, but just because we're human. And the teacher names these times, I think, as one writer in these verses puts it, and to prepare us for what lies ahead and to help us to better walk with other people going through different times to us. But then this, um, the beautiful ebb of this poetry, it's sliced in verse 9. What do workers gain from their toil? And we're back to where we began. So the question of chapter 1, verse 3, of chapter 2, verse 22. We live this life of ebbing and flowing. We roll with the seasons. We take the bad times as well as the good. But what do we gain? Well, nothing. The teacher seems to imply. This isn't primary school. There aren't prizes for all in the end. And that brings us on to our second point. That living light, life in light of the one who holds time in his hands. Living in light of the one who holds time in his hands. From verse 9 down to verse 15. Let's read again from verse 10. I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Now, almost quoting himself from chapter 1 verse 13. The teacher tells us in verse 10 that God has laid on us. This kind of life, these ebbs and flows, these rhythms and routines, they're from him. And he tells us in verse 11 that God has made everything beautiful in its time. He's designed our lives so that we tear and then we mend. So that in the same hospitals we cry tears of joy and of grief. So that words will be replaced by silence, which will be replaced by words which will be replaced by silence, and so on. He's made our world beautiful in its time. But he has not made us mere worker ants programmed to blindly repeat the cycle. For verse 11, he has also set eternity in the human hearts. He's given us a hunger. He's given us eyes that can look up. He's shown us a glimpse that there is something more, peeled back just a little bit of the curtain. 
And yet, verse 11 goes on, but no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We're able to look up, but we can't quite see. We know that there's something more, but we can't quite make it out. For, did you see in that verse, we are not the ultimate doers in the world or in our lives. No one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And down in verse 13, everything that God does will endure forever. God does it. We are not the main doers in our world or in our lives. God is. And we are his creatures. Dearly loved, deeply precious, made in his image, made to rule and reign with him. But we are creatures, not equals with God. So what are we to do? As people who know that the world is not centred around us and around what we do, as people who know that there is another one who holds our time in his hands? Two things, I think. The first we've already seen in chapter 2, 24 to 26. Um, Let me read from verses 12 and 13. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. The first thing I think we are to do is to accept the lives that God has given us with their good times and with their bad. And we are to seek to live as well as we can in them. Not trying to master them not trying to grasp control out of God's hand, not trying to change the hands on the clocks ourselves, trying to make the good times last forever, trying to bring them back, trying to avoid the bad times or end them as quickly as we possibly can. I think we have to accept the lives that God has given us and to look for his blessing in the small things, when life's going well and when it's hard, in our day-by-day work in our three square meals, in the little moments of joy, of hope, of celebration, even when we're in the depths. And the second thing to do, in light of the one who has all of time in his hands, comes at the end of verse 14. God does it so that people will fear him. If you know Ecclesiastes already, you'll know that this this theme, the fear of God, is one that's going to get bigger and bigger. As the book goes on, why has God done life like this? Why has he given us a life like this and yet also set eternity in our hearts? He's done it so that we might fear him. I used to um, be a school teacher and you'd often hear the head teacher criticised in the staff room. They didn't get it. What were they so stressed about? What did they even do all day in their office? But just every now and then, um, as a teacher, you get just a little glimpse into the, some of the stresses on the head teacher's plate, some of the things that they were dealing with that none of the rest of us staff knew very much about. It would fill you with respect, with awe, as your perspective was suddenly enlarged. It's similar with God, I think. He does this so that we'll fear him. It's humbling to realize how small we are before God. But as I've reflected on this over the last few weeks, I've also found it so refreshing. I'm not God. I'm not in control. 
I don't have to pretend that I am. I don't have to try to be. I don't have to chase the wind. I don't have to have a grand master plan for life. I don't have to fight and rail when the world doesn't do what I want to do and try to bend it into submission. I'm not God. I don't have to pretend that I am. I can just let him get on with his job. Will I just do the small things that he's given me to do today, tomorrow, next week? But the teacher isn't quite finished because he sees a problem in verse 16. He sees something else under the sun that troubles him. I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. Living a quiet life, minding my own business, looking for God's goodness in the small things is all well and good until we come up against evil. What about women abused and killed by strangers on the street, by police officers, by their own partners? What about sex offenders, paedophiles, child abusers? What about international disasters and conflicts, many of which barely even make the news in this country? What about evil? Maybe it's not enough to know that God will guide my times. Unfortunately, in verse 17, we reach our final point. I'm all in God's time. Verses 16 and 17. All in God's time. Verse 17, I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity a time to judge every deed. Just as God patterns our lives as humans, there is a bigger pattern that he controls. We don't just, as individuals, have God-given times for our lives. There's a bigger picture of time. God has times. The whole of creation happens all in his time. God has a time for every activity. He has a time to judge every deed. Though in these times, here and now, in the place where we ought to see justice, we see evil, there will be a time when the whole of creation will be held to account. God is in control of our times personally. And he is in control of all time. And he will do things all in his time. We can trust it to him. Our lives, our communities, our countries, our world. We can trust it to him. And in his good time, he will sort all things out. Peter writes uh, in his letter, 2 Peter 3 verse 8, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. And of course, we know that at just the right time, as Romans 5 verse 6 says, the Son of God stepped into history. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, Paul writes in Galatians 4 verse 4. At precisely the right moment in history, 
not a month too late, not a day too soon, God intervened in history by sending his son as a human child, as one who would live in human time, just like us, one who would grow up as seasons came and went through infancy, adolescence, and into adulthood. Though he may not have experienced the aches and pains associated with old age or the pain of labour and childbirth, he knew what it was like to live and grow up in time, to cut his knee, to sprain his wrist, to feel tired at the end of an exhausting week, an exhausting month, an exhausting year, to face a new day after an anguished, sleepless night. He knew what it was like to wish for a moment, a season to last longer, or to wish he could just catapult himself out of the current moment and into the future. He lived in human time, like us. And he experienced human times, like us. He knew seasons of dancing, as he enjoyed wedding feasts and festivals, clapping along with friends and family, holding hands, moving in rhythm to the beat of the drum. And he knew seasons of mourning, lamenting that this isn't how it's supposed to be. It isn't good, it isn't right, as he stood at the grave of his friend Lazarus. He knew seasons of speaking, pouring forth wise words for many hours as he taught huge crowds from a hilltop. And he knew seasons of silence, saying barely a word as the Jewish priests and Pilate examined him, knowing his lips must remain sealed if he wanted to fulfil his mission. He knew humans, human times just like us. And when we're, uh, when we're facing new experiences, we're about to start a new job, become parents, uh, travel to a new place, we, we lap up the wisdom of those who've been there before us, seeking out friends, books, podcasts uh, that can fill us in on this new experience. So as we face the ebbs and flows, the ups and downs of life, we can go to him, the one who's been there before us, the one who's known the best of times and the worst, and the one who walks with us through our times now by his spirit. He knows that we're weak. He knows that we're fragile. He knows that we're not sure whether we can keep going, whether we'll ever see the sun again or feel joy in our hearts. And he's gentle. He's humble in heart. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He intercedes for us. He gives us rest for our souls. He promises that we will lack nothing we need, that he will make us lie down in green pastures, lead us beside still waters, and refresh our souls. He promises that he will be with us, even in the dark valley, that his goodness and love will follow us all the days of our lives, and that when these times are over, we will dwell in his house where there is no night forever. We can talk to the one who has been there before us. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We can turn to him 
which we'll do in just a moment. But before that, does the incarnation not also dignify our human experience of living with its ebbs and its flows, its highs and its lows? The fact that our Lord would come and live among us, that he would live in time, experience time in the seasons of life, being born and dying, planting, uprooting, mourning and dancing. And the fact that he has kept his humanity. He is still a human now. He didn't cast it off when he died on the cross. He died a human. He was risen a human. He was ascended to heaven a human. And while he will continue to be fully God for all eternity, he will also continue to be fully man. And does that not dignify our experience of humanity with its highs and lows? Does that not show us something of the majesty, the joy, the glory, the wonder of being made human, being made in the image of God? And perhaps I pray that that might alleviate, even if just a little bit, the despair we might feel in the early hours tomorrow as the futility of life weighs down upon us again. Let's finish with the words of Sami. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glories in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them, You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen.